Hello, Callie. Hey, Drew. How's it going? It's going pretty well. Um, I think we're going to do a podcast. We are. This is our second gold microphone podcast. And today we are doing Amy Briggs's 1987 Plundered Hearts, a romance on the high seas. Yes, a swashbuckling adventure. Well, before we uh, jump into our conversation, uh, I would love to hear what's going on with your blog, the Gold Machine, your Gold Machine project. The Gold Machine is doing pretty well. Um, we're up to Planetfall now, so uh, several games under our belt at this point, and uh, just finished Witness, the Witness, which uh, just as a bit of information, was the least listened to or least read series of essays uh, since the blog started. So um, hopefully that hasn't completely cratered my my uh, my base. <laughs> Please come back. Witness is over. Um, but yeah, I'm having a lot of fun with it. And uh, we are having a lot of fun with this podcast. We delightfully received some listener feedback and so we get to do our very first virtual mail opening mail share so uh drew would you like to kick us off with our first contributor uh sure uh this first uh email is from blake and uh, blake in the past has given me some really good suggestions for improving uh, the gold machine blog so thanks for that blake and uh this is uh the email I played the first episode of Gold Machine Podcast and definitely enjoyed it. In particular, the informal format versus the formal nature of Gold Machine Blog. The first Infocom game which I remember playing was Zork 1. Due to the lapse of 26 years, I don't remember why I chose that game specifically on the Lost Treasures of Infocom CD-ROM. It may, be, may have been the word Zork, or the fact that Zork was part of a trilogy. The memorable moment for me was moving the rug in the living room and discovering a trap door. That event caused me to realize I would be adventuring underground. I still have both Infocom CD-ROMs, Lost Treasures of Infocom Volume 1, received in 1995, and Masterpieces, received a year later. I still have a computer with CD-ROM drive enabling me to play the games contained on that antiquated media. Blake. Yeah, Blake, that was an awesome uh, moment in Zork for me. I, I, mean, I was very young and I didn't know anything about Zork. I didn't know what Zork was. I kept wondering when we would encounter Zork. I thought maybe it was a monster or something. And I was playing with my friend and we kind of rambled around for a little bit. And then we went in the house and moved the rug. And I just thought, wow, this, this game must be huge. It must be a massive game. And it was uh, at the time. That was probably the, I mean, the biggest uh, adventure game I'd ever seen. And what a great moment. So uh, thanks for that. I'm right there with you. Yeah, Blake, thanks so much for writing in. I love that 
you and Drew can share that imaginative connection and joy of that moment in the game. I also love that you included how you continue to play some of these games on uh, some vintage machinery. So anyone else out there who might be playing it in the original 80s, 90s style, uh, please, I would like to hear about that as well. Um, I will start us off with our second response, and this is from Dark Star. And they say, I listened to your podcast over Spotify today. Great episode. Listening to both of your viewpoints is really cool. I can't wait for the next one. One minor point. According to the promotional poster on my wall, Sea Stalker is also in the introductory category, though I'm not sure how accurate that is. And then there's a slight smile written out. So I think they're referring to, we talked about Wishbringer in our previous episode being classified as an introductory game. Um, Drew, you want to chime in on this? Yeah, and I'll, I'll start by saying I very well may have said uh, the wrong thing about Sea Stalker. Uh, Infocom really kind of struggled with this designation. I think when they first released Sea Stalker as junior interactive fiction, they had an idea that they would have a whole series of games, uh, sort of like a young adult or children's literature uh, section in a bookstore. And Sea Stalker didn't sell that great. So that never happened. There was never really a compelling business reason to make more junior interactive fiction games. And it just kind of sat there on its own on the in the Infocom catalog until Wishbringer was released. And that was introductory uh, interactive fiction. And later Moon Mist would be introductory. And they kind of just uh, tombstoned the junior designation and retroactively made Sea Stalker introductory. Now, one question I have, and if any of you have any kind of insight into Infocom print runs, I'm wondering if that was just changed in the catalog or if Infocom actually did another run of Sea Stalker with the introductory uh, label, because honestly, it's hard for me to imagine people buying enough Sea Stalker in 1985 to justify a reprint. <laughs> All right, and and Docs, Dark Star continues uh, with some really uh, kind comments about the show. So they continue. I thought I would answer your conversation starter here. And so last episode, just as some backstory, we uh, have a prompt where we ask people to respond to what their first Infocom game was and how that experience went for them. So this is Dark Star's response. The first Infocom game I played was Sorcerer. I had already played text adventures up to that point. Some had graphics, but bad parsers. Some we typed in. But when I started playing Sorcerer, I was blown away. The text, the parser everything you could do. Then I ran across the time travel puzzle and I was hooked. My favorite part by far, but playing through the intro is always fun too. Keep up the good work. It'll be interesting to see what you say about Plundered Hearts. Thank you, Darkstar. And I want to briefly uh, agree with you about the time travel puzzle. Uh, 
definitely one of my all-time favorites. And, you know, Steve Moretzky, I, I think in terms of batting average, he was probably the most reliable, solid uh, puzzle designer. You know, we had some great puzzles from other people, but in terms of just uh, constantly uh, hitting a baseline of quality, I, I've got to give that to Moretzky. Okay, so let's go ahead and get into our game of today, which is Plundered Hearts. I will say before we continue the conversation that we must give a content warning as uh, this game and the plot includes direct references to sexual violence, including rape. Um, So if that is something that you don't want to hear about, um, for whatever reason, feel free to... um, just be mindful of that and and make you know a decision of how you would like to or, or not to proceed. Uh, with that being said, let's go ahead and give a little bit of non-spoiler plot. Would you like to kick us off? You play as Lady Dimsford, a young uh, noblewoman, and she has just received a letter. Uh, from the governor of the island of St. Sinistra, uh, John Lafon, and apparently her father is taken ill, and it's a very serious situation, and she's been called to the island uh, to care for him uh, because, uh, and, and possibly just be present for him in his final moments. I think that's implied. So that's the idea. Uh, but very quickly, that gets thrown completely out the window. We have a pirate attack. Um, We have, um, and I won't go into detail, but that's just the beginning of uh, visiting some other exciting locations and, uh, you know, getting to be sort of the uh, plucky heroine uh, that, well, at least speaking for me, I really enjoyed getting to walk in her shoes. Uh, Yeah, I mean, that goes along with uh, the cover art for this game, which we have a unboxing video that will be linked in the show notes. But right on the front of the box, you see your you see who you are as a protagonist. um, And you also see the Love interest, which isn't a spoiler because this is classified as a romance. It's Infocom's one and only romance um, game. So they're standing together, you know, gun in hand, and he's got a sword. And then at the bottom, and they're framed in this porthole, you have the most pirate looking figure uh, with the crossbones hat and the eye eye, like squinted face. Um, and so it really sets up visually um, some of the dynamics that will be happening happening with the characters. And I think it's worth mentioning, um, and we'll talk about later, how one of the compliments of this game that's echoed by many people is how um, fully realized the characters are. And I think by making them so present on the cover, you get their almost their full bodies. Um, you you start to enter into that that world and, and start visualizing these people that you get to play. Absolutely. And just as a bit of advice, I know modern players don't always uh, scrutinize the whole package. And yes, it might be better 
to have feelies, uh, but even even if you don't have them physically, like Kelly said, there's, uh, the visual or material aspect of these games is important. And as an additional note, in Go Machine blog, I always do alt descriptions for uh, for photos uh, that hopefully are helpful uh, to people that aren't able to view uh, these materials directly. Okay, so as I mentioned, uh, a couple of ways that Plundered Hearts is a, a milestone game is that it is Infocom's only romance. It is the first and only game credited with a woman art author, who is Amy Briggs. And it is the first and only game targeted to a woman audience. More about Amy Briggs. Uh, she came to Infocom with a bachelor's degree in English with an emphasis in British literature. A lot of you probably remember last episode we did Wishbringer and Brian Moriarty also had a degree in English. Uh, she started out as a game tester with Infocom in 1985. She was promoted to an implementer in 1986. Plundered Hearts was released in 1987. She left Infocom sometime in 1988 and uh, really took an interesting turn in her career. She got a PhD in experimental and behavioral psychology, and she's enjoyed uh, success in the private sector. Yeah, and now it looks like she's up to a lot of good with some volunteer work with um, environmental organizations in Minnesota and the library. So as someone who also really cares about native plants, I and do some volunteer work with that. Um, I think that's super cool that Amy Briggs is doing it. Yeah, she sounds pretty awesome, really. What um, I guess we should talk briefly about the package. Yeah. Uh, again, there is an unboxing video. We'll have that linked in our show notes. But I, I think it's worth spending a little time. Uh, one of the most notable things is that it is not in the iconic gray box format. Um, which to me reflects the kind of darker days of Activision have begun. Uh, in my opinion, the feelies aren't as high quality as I think most of us were used to with Infocom, although there still are some. Uh, Callie, uh, what, I see you holding it. What would you like to say? Uh, no, just uh, to back up a little bit, thinking about Infocom at this stage as a company it you were saying i think the other day that this was either the beginning of what did you say uh the end of the good times or the beginning of the bad yeah and so the position that she was entering um when she was tasked with writing this game it seems like there was pressure for her to write the next big hit yeah, I, I think Activision had some really uh, ridiculous expectations that everybody could write the next Hitchhiker's Guide, and uh, nobody who knew anything about interactive fiction would think that was possible. Yeah, and um, for for various reasons, who knows, but this uh, Plundered Hearts actually did not sell uh, very well. Is that true? That's true. It was not a sales success, and we'll We'll talk more about, um, I guess, critically how the history has viewed 
its initial reception and why it failed. Uh, I know we've got that on our little bullet list, uh, but for now, yeah, let's, it, it was not, it was a failure commercially. Yeah. Um, so there is a video to that, the feelies by comparison uh, with Wishbringer, which we did last time where you had that cool little glow in the dark stone and that poster that you could hang on your wall and have Infocom with you all the time in your room. And there was just a lot of stuff in a really well illustrated booklet with the legend. Um, this by contrast is quite um, sparse. You have a little velvet pouch, which is the reticule, a hand purse, uh, but it's mostly a dice bag. And uh, <laughs> I mean, there's a letter. Uh, the, the quality of the art is is good. I mean, the, the banknote with the, the, the villain, it's, you know, really well engraved and, and looks, you know, authentic, but in general, not as many goodies. Yeah, I, I agree with that. Um, I just think it's clear that the golden years are, are behind them uh, by the time this comes out. Uh, but one more thing about the box before we move on. I do love that on the back it mentions um, Amy Briggs and the research that she did when when writing this game. So it here's quoting from the back of the box. To create this exotic adventure, author Amy Briggs read hundreds of romance novels, researched 17th century costumes and ships, and was wooed by a dashing pirate. So um, I think it clearly shows um, her own love and uh, enjoyment of the romance genre and her experience reading that. I don't know if we mentioned that this game was set in the 17th century yet, have we? No, I, I guess we haven't. Uh, we've talked about swashbuckling and pirates, but we, we have not gone that far. All right, so there we go. 17th century, that's where we are today in our time-traveling gold microphone Gold machine. Gold machine. <laughs> okay, so let's do it. Let's get into our uh, the critical narrative, sort of how this work was received then, what people, the discourse surrounding it over the past 30 years. So I think probably the most uh, widely read contemporary assessments of Plundered Hearts uh, Jimmy Meyer's uh, Digital Antiquarian and Aaron Reed's 50 Years of Text Games. And uh, both of them kind of have the same, uh, what I am calling a critical narrative, which is over time, what have critics said about this game? And initially when it came out, uh, there, there were kind of two problems that Plundered Hearts had. Uh, in terms of, you know, according to these critics. And one was just men uh, did not want to play as a woman. Uh, even when they said nice things about the game, it was in a backhanded way. Like, I, once you get used to it, it's pretty good. You know, that kind of uh, faint praise. Yeah, but there's, it's fascinating. Like, even the reviews that want to praise the game, they were like, oh, it was really hard at a bodily level to be a woman, uh, to be embraced in the arms of this sexy man, uh, to don a dress. Uh, so that Drew had mentioned uh, 
we were talking the other day, Judith Butler, this idea of performing gender and a resistance by some of these male players to perform the character um, of a woman. Yeah. And the other side of that critical response at the time is there are lots of negative reviews by women, uh, some of them, uh, you know, known to be uh, feminist critics or viewing the game through a feminist lens. And uh, to them, I think... It just wasn't feminist enough? <laughs> is that true? Or it wasn't a feminist game? Um, I can think of at least one reviewer that just said it isn't feminist. And I think it's hard to uh, interpret that now because we're really going uh, back in time. That was, you know, the end of second wave feminism. And now, uh, depending on who you ask, we're either third or fourth wave feminism. So um, kind of getting in that 80s headspace uh, can be challenging. Yeah. And um, so in in the years since, one thing that Drew and I have really through our research about this game have challenged ourselves to think about okay that was the conversation then but what how is this being read and received differently um, by scholars and, and thinkers now and I did come across a an article that I have put in an interlibrary loan request for and it is currently being processed so hopefully we'll have that soon um, but it is by Anastasia Salter, who is an associate professor of games and interactive media at University of Central Florida. And the article is titled Plundered Hearts, Infocom, Romance, and the History of Feminist Game Design. So I think Drew and I have entertained the idea of if uh, when we get this article, we might do a small segment um, talking about it just again to think about where is this game located and what phase is it at in its critical narrative now? Yeah, absolutely. We really, we really want to talk about that because the kind of conclusion of that critical narrative I was talking about now uh, doesn't really feature feminist criticism or uh, you know people looking through that lens. Uh, instead, um, it's really more about how prominent. Uh, you know, people who either write or play interactive fiction enjoy it and think it's very good, which I agree entirely. But I think we really want to understand in terms of analysis, if anything's changed over the years. So looking at this article uh, is uh, really important to us. And uh, just just to give you an, a flavor of what it's about, um, this article argues that the very decision to design romantic play is an act of feminist game design. Its examination of Plundered Hearts, released by Infocom in 1987 and designed by Amy Briggs, positions the contributions of romantic play as an essential part of the history of feminist games. It traces Briggs' contributions as a feminist designer, including her design of playable women characters and her engagement with non-traditional methods of play in plundered hearts and contrasts her work with that of her peers. So uh, that really sounds different from what we've heard about, um, you know, 30 years ago. So uh, 
if we get this and it's as interesting as it sounds, I really think we should kind of update this episode. Yeah, um, absolutely. Because I think, you know, there is, I don't think we want to get the wrong assumption that the critical narrative includes any type of reader response or player reaction, both, you know, scholarship and fan reactions and reviews. So those are kind of all the different types of content um, that we're thinking about with um, the critical narrative. I will say in current conversations, and rightfully so, with um, we're now in a post-Me Too movement, which is a social justice movement, as I'm sure we all know, um, for uh, women to share their experiences uh, with sexual uh, assault and violence and what it is like to be a woman and experience those threats. Um, And with Gamergate, um, conversations about what to do with sexual violence in plundered hearts, how to, not that it can be reconciled, but how do we have a conversation about how enjoyable this game is while also addressing the elephant in the room, that there are recurring scenes of violence in this game. Absolutely. And I think, you know, the last uh, thing to say uh, for now, before we get over the spoiler fence, is I just want to, you mentioned Gamergate and Me Too, and I want to say that part of the narrative is these men of the 80s were so backward, um, and now, you know, we're, we're not backward anymore. And the truth is, uh, those those men of the 80s are still around. They aren't playing Infocom games anymore because Infocom was a mass market entertainment and no longer is. So we have a different audience uh, for those games. The truth is we still have backward violent men. Uh, you can find them on Twitter real easy. You know, they're all over the place. Uh, so I, I, I want I, I do want to push back against the narrative that men were bad then and are better now because I don't. I don't see, based on the kinds of things you've described to me, that's really true. Mm-hmm. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, the world that Amy Briggs was writing this game in, um, many of those threats to women um, at a physical and emotional level very much still um, and sadly exist. Whew. So that that was a little heavy, but it, <laughs> we we felt like we had to go there. How can you talk about this game without going there? But there is so again, like I was saying, I, we were really trying to have a conversation about both. Like, yes, let's acknowledge um, the this this tension between how do we talk about the sexual violence and rape in this game, while also talking about the the. Uh, aspects of this game that are really uh, cool and enjoyable. And um, I think before we cross the spoiler fence, we would like to say um, what some of those things are, what you can um, expect to hopefully enjoy if you choose to play this game. Yeah, now that we're switching gears a bit, I really just want to put it out there. I think this game is a blast. Uh, I enjoy it so much. And we have some little notes on things uh, that have been mentioned over the years. One of the things people really point out is that, unlike other Infocom games, Plundered Hearts really has a traditional forward-moving narrative 
that you can get swept up in and take part in these kind of epic, uh, you know, set pieces. And it's, it's unlike any other Infocom game and it's, it's delightful. Yeah, absolutely. Um, I think in the previous episode, Drew had talked briefly about how fiction is a a much broader tent than just a, a linear story that we may have all been taught in high school. You know, the, the action mountain of rising action, climax, falling action. Um, But this game is a a wonderful example of that traditional linear narrative structure. And um, while I've seen some people say it's very story-like, novel-like, I actually think it's a wonderful work of drama, if anything. As Drew said, with these wonderful settings and characters, I, I could easily see this adapted to the stage. Most definitely. Um, and, you know, I want, I want to, you know, like you said, reiterate what I said about Wishbringer and fiction. And I think the point is, is that those games do that very well. And I really enjoy that type of gameplay. But to come in and have this entirely new experience um, of just really feeling like you're you're swept up in all this drama um it's so exciting and i often was kind of you know i don't want to exaggerate but i mean the truth is i was on the edge of my seat you know during a lot of these scenes like oh my goodness you know <laughs> what's what's gonna happen and i think in 1987 this is a pretty unique uh you know proposition yeah um and Exactly. I mean, you think, oh, it's a romance. It's just going to be a love story. Like, oh, yeah, just a love story or just a romance. But it's not just anything. It's really fun. And um, as we'll discuss later on the spoiler side of things, uh, when we get into more detail, she both uses the uh, familiar archetypes and tropes and um, a, a traditional narrative structure, but she uses it so um with such originality and it's a lot of fun very familiar forms but unexpected action and i think this is also this game is a great example of why the craft of interactive fiction is different from the craft of literary fiction um you know a lot of other things i've seen the critical narrative is this is a very standard story and this and that but the truth is it's not a standard story because this is interactive fiction and nobody had done this before and you know whether or not you could buy a book with a similar story is really irrelevant because there's entirely different craft considerations and the reading experience is completely different i think it sells the game short to say well i've seen these things before because my answer is no if you were playing back then, you had not. And just as an example of that, uh, Steve Moretzky actually cautioned Briggs against doing a romance because he said, you know, that's going to be a really character-rich, um, you know, process and characters are very hard to write. Um, so she really gets in there and does something different that hadn't been done before. Yeah, I think with regard to the characters, and this is another way the game is so smart. 
Um, you know, I, I'm going to keep singing the praises of Amy Briggs. W one of the ways she gets around the limitations of character interaction in Infocom games is she places these interactions kind of in the middle of these set piece type scenes where uh, you're not just like the detective in Deadline questioning a suspect. You know, instead you have this whole dramatic context and maybe you need to act. Maybe you need to listen. You know, it, it isn't, it's, it's a dramatic experience. It's not rote dialogue. Um, so she uses the structure of the plot's movement to overcome this limitation Infocom games have. All right. So I think our final thing before we uh, cross over into Spoiler Town is do we recommend this game? Drew? <laughs> well, you're probably not going to be surprised to hear that my answer is yes. I'm crazy about this game. I was crazy about it years ago, and I'm still crazy about it now. Um, I really, unless unless you're struggling with some of the content warning stuff Callie talked about earlier, um, I'm very comfortable recommending this to anyone. Oh, yes, absolutely. I do, too. It, the protagonist is so fun to play. She's witty. She is brave. Um, just truly a delight to be this character. Um, so with that being said, I think Drew has a conversation starter. And if you we hope you write to us. It was so wonderful to uh, read Blake and Darkstar's uh, notes. So please write us. Andrew, what would you like to hear about for next time? I think it would be great to hear about um, experiences with plundered hearts, um, especially with some of the questions we laid out, like um, how people saw it back then and how people saw it now, see it now. And, you know, if you've played it, when did you play it? You know, are you one of those people back then? You know, or is it been more recent than that? And I think the other thing I'd like to ask is, well, just if the, if that isn't something you want to explore, we'd love to hear anything you have to say about Plundered Hearts, um, really at all, because uh, you can tell we love this game. We want to talk about it. Um, and I, I think also this will always be true if you have kind of meta questions about the podcast or want to make suggestions about the podcast, those are always welcome. And, yes. and in the show notes, we'll have just a ton of ways for you to get in touch with me. Um, uh, Twitter, email. Uh, uh, if you're a member of the Interactive Fiction Community Forum, you can get me there. Uh, I even have a Facebook uh, page for Gold Machine, but hopefully... Um, you'll want to talk to me somewhere else because I, I don't <laughs> forget about the Facebook account. Yeah. I, I don't like Facebook. And the only reason I have the account is for gold machine. But if you, if you contact me there, I promise I will see it. All right. So you can tell we're not begging you, but I kind of am. I'd really love to hear from you um, because it's really one of the joys I think for both of us of doing this podcast is, uh, is you. So, all right, we're going to we're going to descend the crow's nest, which is I learned because of this game, the upper part of a ship. It's like the circular top of a mast or something. And so we're going to crawl down it and onto the deck to begin getting into the action. That's right. Uh, and once we reach the deck, 
We are in Spoiler City. Uh, spoilers as far as the eye can see. Uh, spoilers as wide as the ocean. We're going to talk about puzzles. We're going to talk about the plot. We're going to talk about the ending. So if you have not played this game and you think you want to, please leave and come back later. Yes, if, come back. If, you, if you write us about Plundered Hearts in five months, We'll still talk about it. We'll we'll talk to you about it anytime. So there's no rush, and you don't need to listen to another jot. Um, so don't ruin this game for yourself. All right, enjoy it. That's my final thought. All right, let's do it. Three, two, one, on to the boat. <laughs> yes, we are on the boat now, and I suppose we should start with a more detailed explanation of the plot yeah so there are two ships uh we begin the story on one of them which is the villain jean lafond who you quickly learn is um out to like he's gonna kill your father yeah yeah so he's he's up to no good um but you're on his ship the lafondu and um you quickly encounter your first pirate yeah, uh, this the game starts right in the middle of things, you know, media rest, and uh, you immediately have to deal with situations. The boat you're on is being attacked. Um, a, you know, scuzzbag pirate, who's actually the bad pirate on the front of the box, uh, walks in, he wants to attack you, and, uh, you know, you defend yourself um, by beating him over the head with a small chest. I love that coffer under the bed and getting to smack Crowley, who's the conniving crumb bag. Uh, <laughs> I was like, Drew and I are playing this together, so I, I'm slowly easing my way into becoming a solo interactive fiction player. And I was like, hey, can we hit him? And he's like, yeah. And I was like, oh, okay, this is what this is all about so yes truly awesome yeah and things basically um well you're rescued from that situation you're rescued from the boat you thought was going to take you to your father mm -hmm. but it turns out uh you it's know not. it's not <laughs> uh-uh <laughs> and then you get swept up you have your encounter with Nicholas Jameson, the azul-eyed, beauteous man who is a pirate, but he really wasn't born a pirate. He is a gentleman fallen from grace pirate who we learn later is on a, a revenge mission, actually, to avenge the death of his brother and his sister-in-law, I think, too. Nicholas is a pretty uh, funny uh, character in the game because he keeps talking like he's going to rescue you or he's going to help you and he never does I, I think he means well but yeah he really believes it he thinks he's going to help you and he fully intends to but that's just because our protagonist is incredibly capable and is always basically saving herself and everyone else yeah, she rec rescues him at least three times. Yeah. <laughs> um, so, uh, yeah. 
there's a lot of kind of inverted tropes in this game that I, I find enjoyable. Okay, so just a really quick rundown. We've got John LaFon, the evil governor of an imaginary island, Sinestra. We have Nicholas Jameson, the attractive pirate and not-so-helpful helpful guy. And we have uh, Lady Demsford, our protagonist. She is a young um, daughter of a British lord, um, and she is unmarried, you know, kind of all what you would expect of the young damsel in distress in quotes, because as we learn, she um, upends that in a lot of fun ways. Uh, we also have Crowley, who was the, you know, awful sidekick of the governor. And we've got Cookie, who is just a delight. Do you have anything you want to say about Cookie? <laughs> um. I, he's really the only competent male in the game. Um, and he uh, he's kind of, like you said, he's sort of an interesting figure. He um, has, you know, he's missing part of his leg. So he isn't, um, you know, there's, there's an ability he's lacking um, and he overcomes that. Uh, but he, but he, he's set apart from the other men. You know, he doesn't have a girlfriend or love interest, mm -hmm. and uh, he, it, he he's also the only one on the ship that recognizes uh, Lady Dimsford uh, in her boys' clothes. Yeah, it really makes you wonder, especially when we get into um, all m many of the encounters with these other male figures, uh, like Crowley, for instance, who in many ways is like Cookie's opposite. Um, you know, on the cover of the box, Crowley has, he's very physically, you know, capable with his big muscles and a physical threat. And it makes you wonder if like, there's something we could talk about maybe with like disability studies, if Cookie's um, lack of a, a limb for whatever reason makes him more of a quote unquote, safer, less threatening male figure. I don't know, just something to think about there. Yeah. I think if I were studying this in school, one of the papers I could write would be about Cookie, I think. Yeah. Um, and uh, he wrestles a crocodile later. I mean, he's really the only one who doesn't need you to save him. Um, and then there's two other characters. Lucy, who is your father's lover that you meet on the island. Um, she seems like good people. And uh, the crocodile. I'm going to count the crocodile as a character because, yes. Yeah. So these are all fun people you run into in the course of the game. Uh, I do want to mention a cup, a cup, a puzzle near the beginning, uh, which is also another case where she rescues all the men on the ship uh, after uh, Nicholas Jameson you know, says, well, you can just stay locked in this room and I'll handle everything. Don't, you know, I'll be back for you. And, you know, he, the, the ship is actually a mess. There's two ways it can be destroyed, and only Lady James uh, Dimsford can fix that. Uh, one of them is the ship's about to explode with some <laughs> gunpowder, and the other is that somebody's raised the anchor. It's gonna hit the shore. It's gonna hit. It's getting pulled in with the tide, and it's gonna it's gonna be wrecked on the shore. Truly, really a crash and bang. <laughs> yes, and. Uh, it's the explosion puzzle that I had an issue with. You like have to tear a rag off your clothes and then uh, soak it and then kind of do a hook shot 
over a locked gate to land it directly on burning gunpowder. And, and you know what? Um, I just don't buy that. I didn't think it was well clued or intuitive what to do. And, um, I don't have much more to say, but that was, to me, sort of a distracting uh, puzzle that kept me from uh, moving forward with the story. Mm-hmm. Um, and so one of the first of many disguises or costume changes um, happens at the beginning of the game where you leave Jameson's um chambers and want to make your way to the island by dressing as a cabin as a cabin boy so drew i think you had some interesting thoughts about disguise in this game yeah um i think having to the i think the disguise thing is presented as or it feels like and i think has been talked about in reviews like it's just kind of a fun thing to do but I, I think it's deeper than that. You know, this is, um, you know, a woman who's incredibly constrained by social forces, by patriarchy. And one of the ways she kind of navigates those constraints is through clothing. Mm-hmm. You mentioned Judith Butler, Callie, and performing gender. And I think that's what's happening here. She uh, performs maleness, which makes her capable of entering spaces that she wouldn't allow to be in otherwise and the dress serves the same function yeah absolutely and just for some context uh the essay by butler i think it's the seminal one most of us reference when we think of this was released in published in 1988 and it is performative acts and gender constitution an essay in phenomenology and feminist theory and that was published in a theater journal uh, released by John Hopkins University Press. So I think uh, returning to our earlier conversation about seeing this in some ways as a drama, as you would on a stage, um, thinking about how clothing and movement and all of this is coming together as a performance, especially for our protagonist. Yeah. I think it's very interesting to think about all of Lady Dimsford's movements and actions in terms of performance and operating within social constraints and how those two sort of dance together throughout the game. And and it's one of the ways um, uh, Lady Dimsford is so clever because she, she learns to negotiate those different worlds and even take advantage of them at times. Uh, so very resourceful, very clever. And, uh, you know, the costumes, I think, are one way that's borne out. Exactly. You know, as Butler says, like gender is not a stable identity. And we have a protagonist who is very um, skilled in in maneuvering between these different expectation, expectations that are constructed around her. She can play the lady, don a ball gown, dance with the men, um, and she can also, you know, use a sword to, as we see later, back Crowley into a, a trapdoor dungeon pit. So she's very adept at both worlds. Yeah, for sure. And I guess if we if we move on, it sounds like we're 
talked about the ship a little bit, uh, getting on land. And she has, her main goal is still to find her father, but that's kind of a complicated thing. Uh, she has to, like Callie said, she has to find a dress. She has to go down to the ball and be a lady for a while. And um, we have two of those great scenes where encountering characters is action and there's not pressure to again have this deadline like interaction mm -hmm. instead the forward movement carries the characterization carries the dialogue very effectively and how that works is uh, in this great dramatic set piece you dance you know at this formal ball with first uh, jameson uh, your you know romantic interest and then with sleazebag lafond mm -hmm. and uh, it's one of my favorite scenes in the whole game yeah and i love how you know to use that verb dance like you are truly dancing between these two um portraits of maleness of masculinity yeah um because lafond i mean we're in the spoiler area now but his main uh, thing in this game, besides, you know, wanting to kill your father and wanting to kill Jameson, but, you know, what he wants to do with the protagonist is uh, rape her. And he's so disgusting um, and oily and just a vile, obnoxious person. And... Uh, it's a perfect first introduction to him. That's the first time we see him, the first time we talk to him, and, uh, you know, yuck. Yeah, absolutely. And I think, you know, while we're already talking about him, it seems like an appropriate moment to jump to what I think is an arguably one of the most controversial puzzles um, in this game. Yeah. Any discussion I've seen of puzzles and plundered hearts has has talked about this. And uh, just to give you the setup, jog your memory, or if you're listening because you never think you'll play the game, uh, what happens is Lafon threatens uh, to kill your father or and kill Jameson if you don't at a certain time go up to his room and. You do go to his room, and he's being uh, very smarmy with you and talking kind of uh, indirectly about uh, what he's going to do to you, you know, at the end of this conversation. And while that's happening, the character, the protagonist, has to figure out a way to uh, get out of that. Um, you know, the butler is guarding the door. So there's a man outside and, you know, Lay Dempsford isn't in a position to physically overpower Lafon. Mm -hmm. So she has to think her way out of this. Yeah. And so, okay, in addition to the butler outside of the, the room, there are these, we start to see being be presented with puzzles. So we've got these two goblets, one green, one blue, and we have our laudanum. Um, and so, okay, the obvious thing is like, okay, we just need to to put the drugs in the goblet, the classic drinking, you know, put, poison someone with their drink. But that's not the only puzzle that we get. No, it's not. It's quite an extended scene, really, of 
switching around cups and bluffing and uh, finally uh, disabling Lafond with blowing pepper in the face. And the problem most people have with this puzzle, there are two problems. One is that it doesn't seem very well clued. Mm-hmm. And I think that's true. I don't, I, I had a sense of what I wanted to do with the cups, but the reality was I had to keep experimenting until things started to work. And, you know, that, people often refer to this phenomenon as a learning from dying. And, uh, you know, I'll be honest with you. And hopefully uh, y'all will still like me after this, but I, <laughs> I don't care about learning from dying. It doesn't bother me in the least. I play from software games and, you know, sometimes when you die in that, that game, you could lose 30 minutes of gameplay, just getting back to where you were. You may lose your experience. You like Bloodborne? Bloodborne. Yeah. Dark Souls. And, you know, I I enjoy those games. So if you ask me, uh, Drew, do you mind restoring a save from 30 seconds ago? You know, I, I, yeah, I don't mind. Just that being bothered by that is not part of my gaming idiom. And I I get where y'all are coming from, but it just isn't my experience. But this is something entirely different. And I think that's what you're getting at is that the fail state, I think you mentioned earlier in this game, is a fate worse than death. I don't think you ever really die unless you get shot at the end in the final beach scene. But other than that, you're, it's implied that your your fate, your fail state is to be raped. So in this case, and I think Drew made a really um, astute observation about one of the ways that it's very tense and complicated to have these puzzles entangled with this um, persistent violence. Yeah. The playing experience of this is kind of a perfect storm of uh, what I consider pretty unpleasant. You have the guesswork at the puzzle, which means you're going to be replaying again and again, um, saving and restoring. And like I said, I don't mind that as much, uh, but I I did kind of mind the fact that this is in a scene where at the end uh, the protagonist is going to get raped. I felt like that repetition with that threat um, got pretty unpleasant for me. Mm -hmm. Um, And I I felt um, mainly the only time in the game really where I felt uncomfortable with um, the way that uh, fate worse than death was used. Yeah, I I mean, there's really no easy answer or analysis of this, um, but I think what Drew and I are getting at is, yes, it's very realistic for the 17th century and unfortunately even now for a woman to confront the, the threat of sexual violence. And so that being present in the game is of course, a reality that the protagonist would have faced in this world of pirates and governors and a patriarchy, the patriarchal world that she's in. Um, but rape being used as part of a tension in a puzzle, that is something I think up for a lot of questions. Agree 100%. Okay, well, let's go on to, so that's the big puzzle, uh, one of them. Uh, but 
My favorite puzzle sequence, and I think one in discussions we've heard is also challenging, is um, how do you find your way to the dungeon? Yeah, and this is the um, this is the copy protection puzzle, although it's kind of a soft copy protection puzzle. On the banknote, which you can see again if you go to our unboxing video, is it shows Lafond wearing a hat, holding a specific book, and touching a place on the globe. And the way you get into the dungeon is doing all of those things. And um, I, I, I had a hard time with that one. I, I just floundered looking at the note. Like I knew I had to touch the globe, but for some reason it was right there and kind of obvious finger on the island of Sinistra, but I, I just didn't put it together. Now, I, this is a good example of struggling with a puzzle because once I was done with it, once I finally figured it out, I could look back and say, oh, it's all right there. This is a very reasonable thing to conclude. And I don't mind those as much as more, you know, the kind of random weird things like tear my shirt do throw it over you know um this this um was okay for me and again this you know look at your feelies if you're going to play this because you you need to solve the puzzle yeah and just a quick note i mentioned in the the non-spoiler part of the show but the artwork for both the front of the box and on the bank note um, is really well done um the person who created the banknote is obviously very familiar with like classical uh, portraiture, especially like portraiture of like ro royals or um, other wealthy figures in society because each of the um, objects featured says something about Lafond, um, the globe. He's a colonial, you know, force or power, like the pompous hat, his style, you know, all of those little details come together to help create a portrait of him and suggest qualities. Yeah. And I think, what else do we have on our list? Okay. Crocodile and chandelier. <laughs> okay. I'll start with the crocodile. Um, I love it. I, this is another puzzle where it's not just give the crocodile a bone. You got to put it to sleep. So you use your laudanum. Um, and I love how the, it's not just, you know, put it to sleep and it's done. When you save your dad, he comes out and he's like, oh, crocodile. And he like scratches it like it's a puppy <laughs> or something and it wakes it up. Uh, and then later, whenever Cookie, you return to the dungeon to help save Jameson, Cookie's like, I've got it go get the captain and he like plunges into the water and you know just wrestles the crocodile so a really again a really fun set piece i could almost picture this on a stage with you know some sort of animated crocodile yeah i, I like the crocodile too and i generally just like animals in infocom games uh, i talked about them on blog and see uh, starcross and I think that'd be another paper I'd enjoy writing is about animals in Infocom games. Our platypuses <laughs> and the cats from Wishbringer. 
Yeah, exactly. I, there's just some cool info co- uh, animals in these games. I think you mentioned the other cool thing, which is the chandelier. And, you know, it, this is kind of like Chekhov's chandelier. You see it early on and you just know, man, I am going to swing on that. I am here for this chandelier. It was kind of distracting because once I saw it, I'm like, is it now? Is it time? Can I do it now? Like, I <laughs> Oh, that was a blast. Yeah, it was awesome. And just, you know, I keep saying this, but another example of kind of being involved in these dramatic events and feeling like, you know, you're really kind of this heroine, you know, and and uh, I, there's no other Infocom game like it. It just feels terrific. So yes, you do get to swing on the chandelier and once again be a hero. Yes, and that kind of uh, brings you to kind of the the end game of Plundered Hearts. Uh, you, you flee to the beach with Lord Dimsford and Lucy and Jameson and Cookie and some other of Jameson's men and. You know, this this also this end game is kind of a unique infocom situation isn't it Callie? yeah uh it really is because of the multiple endings you don't just have one desired ending or what's it called the perfect ending you don't just have a perfect ending really you've got four what i think are very neat uh invalid options for who you can be um, at the end of the game. Yeah, definitely. And, you know, a lot of the end text kind of says, well, there are other more satisfying endings, uh, if you want to try again. And I think that's a misstep. It's really, the, these are all situations where the player decides everyone's fate mm-hmm. and it, it should just be their choice. Um, it shouldn't be a question of good or bad. It should just be um how do you want this story to end and it's unique i think in infocom games and you might think of some other examples um but i think of sorcerer where you can uh kill oh i'm not going to spoil that but they're 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 (laughs) the verb that verb was not used (laughs) yeah there are two bad endings and one good ending to sorcerer and you know, that's that's a little different. I mean, those are clearly two bad, like really bad, and one uh, good. And I think, and, two, and one canon, a canon ending. And I don't really feel like Plundered Hearts is that way. And I think it's a lot of fun to, you know, in a game where the character is so well-defined, finally, at last, you get to say who she is and who she will be. Yeah, it's a great way where uh, Briggs gives you agency as a player and by extension, your protagonist, as Drew just said, um, gets to determine her future. And um, I, yeah, do we want to get into what some of these endings are? Yeah, I I think we ought to, I mean, I think there's one we want to talk about in detail, but just list them real quick. 
yeah, so there's the happily ever after ending, which I guess in the traditional romance, like Cinderella or, you know, others, you'd be like, okay, Nicholas uh, and Lady Dimsford end up together. They go to America and they have a lot of kids. All right. That's one ending. <laughs> yeah. And there's, uh, I, I guess they would say this is the bad ending, but, uh, you know, not necessarily. Uh, love transcending death. Uh, at the end, during the final showdown, uh, you can shoot a gun into the air, and you and Jameson die in each other's arms. Yeah, um, and then the third option is called Orphan, and you sling, you use the garter that you got from Lucy, your father's lover, as a slingshot to hit uh, cruelly, but your dad gets shot and he dies. But other than that, um, everything is like the happily ever after ending where you and Jameson go have, you know, manifest destiny in America. And then finally, we have uh, our favorite ending. You know, the best. This is the one I choose. This is Lady Dimsford's true destiny. <laughs> the Pirate Queen. So I'll just read this ending. Uh, I love it so much. You hear distant shots and screams and gaze back across the restless waves to the massacre on the beach. The, slight, the sight blurs with your tears of shame, tears for the father and the lover you left behind. The tale you tell Jameson's crew of rapine and blood, of your heroic attempt to save their captain, and of your own escape after his death in your arms, is not so far from the truth that you cannot appear sincere. Cannily, you take advantage of their temporary grief, select a private guard, and teach the rest the discipline of the whip. You have achieved a score of 25 out of 25 points. Thus, you have finished the story of Plundered Hearts, earning the title Pirate Queen. Isn't that fun? I mean, come on, we don't believe her, right? She's not really feeling shame uh, or crying tears of despair for leaving her father and lover. Uh, <laughs> what I love about this moment is that not only does it highlight our the skills of our protagonist that we've seen again and again as a competent leader, um, but it also makes visible the role of story and storytelling. Um, because we see she crafts this lie, this narrative, to assert her power. So it's it's a neat nod there to the actual mechanics of narrative. Yeah, absolutely. And I just since we're we're at the end, I want to restate that I love this game, and you know I really do recommend it. It's a ton of fun. Me too. And um, I think, Drew, have you already given the prompt of we'd love to hear the first, if you've played this game, uh, when was the first time that you've played it? Or any other thoughts that you've had about other moments in the episode or just anything else you'd like to share with us? Yeah, we'd love to hear from you. And uh, again, in the episode notes, there'll be multiple ways to get in touch as well as links to Jimmy Mars uh, 
our essay about Plundered Hearts and Aaron Reed's essay from 50 Years of Text uh, Gaming, Text Games. So there's some bonus reading as well. We only have the synopsis, but we'll put what we have of that uh, current article by Salter. Uh, if we get that in the next few days and um, we think it would interest you, we'll we'll just do a little mini episode where we talk about it. Um, I don't think there's anything else we want to cover. I think just a big thank you for listening, and uh, we really appreciate you hanging around. Yeah, definitely. Uh, thanks for tuning in, and hopefully we'll get to... Well, did we mention what we're doing next? No. You want to tell oh. them? <laughs> Enchanter. Yeah, we're going to do Enchanter, which is one of my two favorite Infocom games. And uh, we won't be able to do a sealed unboxing this time, but I do have... Can you believe this? I got a folio of Enchanter for 40 bucks. Now, it's not in perfect condition, but if you haven't seen... Uh, the Enchanter Folio, it is without a doubt, in my opinion, the prettiest Infocom package, the most uh, attractive looking in terms of kind of beauty uh, that they made. And of course, that's limited to the Folio edition. The gray box doesn't uh, have the same magic at all. So we'll do a video of that and let you take a look at uh, the cover and the goodies inside. Including a hand-drawn map that was sent with it so a really neat bit of personalized play from someone at some point yeah absolutely it's the previous owner left their notes and some maps inside and uh if you uh, some of you probably had that experience of buying a used game and having a map in there i love it it's such an extra treat uh, so definitely a good gift for me i just got it two days ago so i'm excited to talk about it all right we'll look forward to next time Yep, we'll see you then. Thanks again for tuning in.